Now, most of you will know that over the last several years, I've been slowly working my way through the book of Acts of the Apostles. And uh, I've been concentrating mainly on the story of Saul of Tarsus. Now, three years after the crucifixion, Saul, who was a Jew born in what is now modern Turkey, is converted and he changes his name to Paul. And Acts chapter 9 verse 15 tells us that Paul has been set apart by the risen Lord Jesus Christ as his special instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And with Barnabas, Paul is a teacher at the church of Antioch for five years. And then after a prophecy by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey in about AD 48. And uh, if we bring the map up. Um, so I don't know if you can see it. Uh, but basically, um, Jerusalem's down here. Paul's born up here in Tarsus and Antioch's here. So Paul becomes a teacher uh, of the, uh, the church in Antioch for five years. And then they set out on the first missionary journey. On the first missionary journey, um, they go to the... Uh, it says here it's about... Which is described in Acts 13, 1 to, verse, uh, uh, to chapter 14, verse 28. It's about 1,200 miles they go. And they walk in. They go over this mountain range. And they go round here. And they set up churches. And Paul's method is to go into a town... And if there's a synagogue there, to start preaching in the synagogue. And if the Jews accept his message, to stay there preaching. But if they don't accept his message, and, um, then he will set up a Christian church nearby. And that first missionary journey is April 48 to about September 49. The second missionary journey is over 2,800 miles. And it took them about uh, three years. And again, it's a circular journey starting and ending in Antioch in Syria. There's a war going on in Syria. It was a great place for the gospel 2,000 years ago. And Antioch, after the church in Jerusalem, was the second most prominent Christian church in the world 2,000 years ago. And on his second missionary journey, he goes um, much further. He first of all visits the churches he set up before. And, um, uh, and he takes with him Silas, Luke and Timothy. And that happens in about AD 50 to AD 52. And uh, Paul, on his second missionary journey, crosses over from Troas over to uh, this region here, Macedonia. It says Macedonia up here and starts preaching in Philippi and elsewhere. On Paul's third missionary journey, uh, which is recorded um, in Acts um, uh, uh, 1540 to 1822, uh, sorry, uh, his third missionary journey, starting in AD 53, covers about 2,500 miles, about 1,300 miles over land and about 1,200 miles by sea. And it takes about four years. And he starts in Antioch in Syria again in Acts 18.23. And it ends unexpectedly 
in Jerusalem in Acts 21:16. And uh, on the third missionary journey, Paul goes all the way across here to the, all the churches he's met before, to Corinth and Athens. He goes a bit over here to Irillium, uh, which is mentioned in uh, Romans 15. And he's on the way back to uh, Jerusalem. And uh, the year May 56 to May 57 was a very fruitful year for Paul. He wrote 1 Corinthians, he wrote to the Corinthian church from Ephesus. Uh, Paul spends three years actually in Ephesus and uh, in his time in Ephesus he builds up the church there and they probably evangelise all these other churches around here, Laodicea, Colossae, uh, etc. The, the, church, the seven churches of Revelation. And uh, during that time, Ephesus becomes the third most important Christian church in the world. And uh, uh, while he's at Philippi, up at the top there, he writes two Corinthians, and then he goes and spends the winter in Corinth, about three months where he writes in the winter of AD 56 his epistle to the Romans. And this is perhaps the greatest letter ever written in human history. A letter that transformed the last 500 years of Western civilization, because the understanding of it sparked both the Reformation and then the Renaissance that followed. And it's ushered in this present scientific and technological age. You should read Romans for yourself. Now, from Corinth, um, Paul's in Corinth where he writes Romans, and then he retraces his steps. And last time, um, uh, he's picking up various people as he goes back, and he stops in Miletus and meets the Ephesian elders, and then he's about to sail on. Uh, if you press the next button there, Ben. Uh, there you go. There's... Is going to sail on to Caesarea, which is on the coast, about 70 miles from Jerusalem. Now, as Paul's going from, via, from Corinth via Philippi, etc., is repeatedly warned by the Christians in the different cities that he's heading into danger. And he says, Acts 20, 22, and now compelled by the Spirit... I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And he has a very tearful um, uh, uh, leaving of the Ephesian elders at Miletus. So, Paul, why are you so determined to visit Jerusalem? When, all the, uh, when the Holy Spirit's saying in all the churches that only prison and hardship await you? Well, the answer to that question is actually not in the book of Acts. It's in Romans 15, which we've read, and it's in Corinthians. And to understand Paul's motive and to understand what's going on in Acts 21, we have to look first in these letters. So, Paul, why are you so determined to visit Jerusalem? Well, Paul says in his trial, which will happen um, sometime in June 56 in Jerusalem, and, um, sorry, to Felix, who's down here, 
But uh, uh, a little while later, it says to the governor Felix in Acts 24, 17, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. In fact, the collection for the Jerusalem church is mentioned several times in Paul's letters. And that's why we read 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8. And it's in 2 Corinthians 8 uh, all the way through to chapter 9, verse 15. It's mentioned in Romans 15, which we read. And this um, uh, collection spanned the course of a year. And it was something that, uh, that Paul claimed he was prepared to die for. He says it in Romans 15.30. But it's hardly mentioned in Acts of the Apostle itself. Only that one verse, Acts 24.17. So this is what we read before. I'm going to read from the NIV because the language isn't quite as quaint as in the New King James Version. He says, uh, 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 to 4. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So the, the gift from the, the Corinthian church alone is a substantial gift, isn't it? Because Paul believes that it needs at least two men to accompany the money all the way to Jerusalem. And the Corinthian church are setting aside each and every week, the first day of every week, the Lord's Day, each and every believer is setting aside a, a sum of money. In fact, the collection that's going to Jerusalem is from all of Paul's Gentile churches. 1 Corinthians 16 says, you know, do what I told the Galatian churches. And those are the ones which we had on the map, which are in Turkey, which he, which he evangelized on his first missionary journey, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, etc. In Romans 15, he says, from Macedonia and Achaia, uh, we're pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. The Macedonian churches are Philippi, Thessalonica and Berea, etc. And Achaia is Corinth and Athens. The province of Asia, that's Ephesus, Colossae, Smyrna, Laodicea, etc. are also represented in the group of men that Paul is sending with the money. Indeed, there's a large team of men with Paul from all these churches and it's detailed in Acts 20 verse 4 and these men are there both to provide physical protection for the gold and silver it's probably all in cash and also to act as a witness of Paul's honesty and the integrity of the handling of the gift from Macedonia it says we have Sopater son of Pyrrhus from Berea there's uh, Aristarchus and Secondus from Thessalonica. There's Luke, who was pastor of the Macedonian church in Philippi, uh, who was probably a Galatian himself. Uh, there's 
the Galatians Gaius from Derby and Timothy from Lystra and from the province of Asia um, there's Tychicus and Trophimus the Ephesian so it's a large team of men who have all brought offerings from all these different churches uh, that Paul has established uh, in his three missionary journeys so Paul why are you so determined to visit Jerusalem well, he wants to make sure that this substantial gift will get to the poor of Jerusalem because it will demonstrate a key truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ has broken down the historic division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it's a practical outworking of the love that these converted Gentiles have for their Christian brothers in Jerusalem. In the unconverted world, Gentiles across these provinces would never have given to the poor in Jerusalem. And it's a stunning proof of the Gentiles' conversion and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Gentiles, you know, for many Jews were very uncomfortable with Gentiles. And there were, some of them were very uncomfortable that they'd been saved on the same basis as the Jews themselves. Gentiles had become stereotypes in the mind of the Jews. They were first and foremost idolaters with all their pagan temples and they ate unclean meat which had been offered to the idols in the temples. And the Gentiles stereotypically practiced unspeakable sexual immorality. And uh, this indeed was true for a lot of the pagan Gentiles but it was no longer true of the Christian Gentiles. And this uh, gift is proof that the Gentiles, who were once far from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That both Jew and Gentile have been reconciled uh, to God and together by Christ's body suffering on that cross. And so the natural enmity between Jew and Gentile is dead and gone. Christ having made peace between these two groups in his death on that cross. It's a clear teaching from the book of Ephesians, for instance, which is, of course, a big Gentile city that contributed, uh, a church in the Gentile city that contributed uh, to this gift. So Paul's main, uh, first aim is in making sure that this gift that demonstrates the truth of the salvation of the Gentiles to the Jews in the mother church, mother Christian church in Jerusalem. So, Paul, uh, why are you so determined to visit Jerusalem? One, to bring the gift. Paul says in his trial before Governor Felix, Acts 24:17, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Now, Paul's taking a substantial sum of money as a gift to the poor Christians in Jerusalem, but he's also going to Jerusalem to address another issue. And this is the difficulty that he was having with the Judaizers. Who are the Judaizers? Well, they, they fall into two camps. Paul had been hounded throughout his three missionary journeys 
by unbelieving Jews. That's those Jews who refuse to accept that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And although Paul had suffered greatly uh, at the hands of these unconverted Jews, Paul continued on uh, with his missionary efforts, establishing churches, preaching the gospel. But the letter to Corinthians that Paul sends to the church in Corinth at the end of AD 56, chapters, end of chapter 9, 10 and 11, shows that Paul also has another group of strict Jews after him. Now, these are converted Jews. They accept that Jesus is the Messiah. But they are ones who insist that Gentile converts to Christ must stick to the laws of Moses. And um, read the end of 2 Corinthians and you'll see uh, the situation more clearly. Now, this same thing had happened about six or seven years previously in the Galatian churches when Jewish believers came um, with letters of accreditation to that church from the mother church at Jerusalem and it caused a huge problem. And what's happened here now is that a similar group of converted Jews have turned up in Corinth and they're undermining Paul's authority as an apostle. And this is in a church that is already full of factions and it risks undermining the whole basis of, of Christianity. What do I mean? Well, we are saved by grace. This is the basis of Christianity. We are sinners justified before a holy God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we're not uh, trying to, uh, you know, unsuccessfully attempt to keep the law and so satisfy God by our adherence to a set of rules. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 2.21. If righteousness could be gained through the law... Jesus Christ died for nothing. And you cannot please a holy God by cleaning up your act and trying to live as a decent person. It's just not possible because we're sinners. And salvation of sinners only happens through the grace of God. And we're justified before this holy God by putting faith in Jesus Christ and his death on that cross. We're not going to do it by keeping any set of laws, including the law of Moses. And no wonder Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem, because despite the warnings in every city of the danger to himself. This is a matter of the heart of the gospel. Paul had successfully uh, fought this battle before, uh, something that's known as the Council of Jerusalem. Um, the matter of the heart of the gospel is salvation by grace through a faith that is the very gift of God himself to uh, sinners, sinners that just do not deserve the grace of God. And Paul is keen to see the elders in Jerusalem and to reaffirm his apostleship to the Gentiles. Now, when we come to Acts 21, verses 18 to 25, in a later sermon, uh, we'll see what actually happens. Uh, but, but that's for the future.
So, we've seen the two reasons that Paul is keen to go to Jerusalem despite the opposition. is bringing a large gift that demonstrates the heart of the Gentile, the changed heart of the Gentile, in the, its outpouring of love, Christian love and affection to the Jews in Jerusalem, and is there to fight uh, for the heart of the gospel, that it's not through keeping the law of Moses that we're saved, but only through faith in the effective work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But these letters uh, that we've looked at, uh, they talk an awful lot about Christian giving. And I thought, since we've not had a sermon in the church on giving for, I think, about 10 years, I'd go through some of the principles. Now, there's, there's uh, Christian giving. There's many jokes about it, isn't there? Do you know the joke about the three ministers that meet together? And they say, well, how do you uh, share up the, you know, the collection? And the first minister says, well... Um, I, I draw a circle on the ground and I throw the money up and what lands in the circle I give to God and what lands outside I keep for myself. And the second minister says I've got an easier method, I just draw a line, I throw the money up, what lands this side of the line I keep for myself and what lands the other side of the line I give to God. And the third minister said well my method's even easier, I throw the money up in the air and what stays up is God's and what comes back down is for me. Too often, that's how we treat our money, isn't it? Right? We keep it all for ourselves. That's our default position. It's all for us. But Paul teaches us a better method here. And we're going to look through some of the verses in 1 Corinthians 1.16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, the first principle, which is from 2 Corinthians 8, Chapter 8, verse 9, is that giving is Christ-like. The essence of Christianity is that Christ, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor. That's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? Jesus, the eternal Son of God, lived a perfect life that we sinners can never live. He died that death on the cross in our place, and he paid our debt of sin, satisfying a holy God. All those given faith by God put their trust in Jesus and live a radically changed life as a result. If we are in Christ, then we should naturally act like him. And our giving of ourselves for others, our giving of ourselves for others' benefit is one area where we should actively copy the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first question is, do we give ourselves to God and to others? Yeah? Do you give yourself to Christian study and to work, to prayer, to worship and to evangelism? You know, because your money is the last thing that God wants. He wants your heart and mind and life. Have you given them to God? If you give yourself first to God, then you'll have no trouble giving some of the cash in your pockets or pay packet to others. Giving is not about money. 
It's about your heart attitude. Is your heart changed by the Holy Spirit? Has it been made new in Jesus Christ? All those who have had this spiritual heart transplant, their lives are now a spiritual sacrifice to God. And our money is only a very small part of our life, isn't it? So how like Christ are you? Christ, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor. You know, if you've got no desire to give yourself to God into prayer, in Bible study, in worship, evangelism, it's a hard truth, but it's probably because you're not converted. So don't try to make up by giving your money to a church. That's putting the cart before the horse. The church does not need nor want the money or service of unbelievers. Rather, our message to unbelievers is repent and believe the good news that by faith in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven your sins and be right with God, a holy God who is our judge. Turn from your sin and turn to a new life in Jesus Christ. That's our message to the unconverted. But the message to the converted is that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor for our sake. For the Christian, giving is being like our Lord Jesus Christ. How like our Lord Jesus Christ are you? Do you give your life? Paul's principle number two. And this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, which I've just thrown away. Well, let's just read it out of the book. I speak not by commandment, says Paul, but I am testing the sincerity of your love. I'm not commanding you, he says, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. God, the Bible declares, is love. And if we are truly recreated in the image of Jesus Christ, God's Son, then we should have a loving nature in each and every one of us. God so loved the world, the most famous verse in the Bible tells us, he gave his only son. Paul is keen to see the evidence of God's love in the Corinthians displayed by their love for God's people. How can I show that I love God? God's invisible, he's intangible. I can show that I love God by doing his people good. Can't I? Uh, Apostle John says, doesn't he, in 1 John, any man who says he loves God but hates his brother is a liar. The poor, Paul is keen to see the evidence of God's love in the Corinthians displayed by their love for God's people. 
the poor in Jerusalem, whom they had never met, and they didn't have TV or telephones to see them or speak to them, and against whom, as Gentiles versus Jews, they had a natural antipathy. The proof of their love is that the saved Corinthians gave to meet the needs of the saved Jewish poor. And they didn't give begrudgingly, did they? As you read in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So, if you think you're in a loving relationship with God, do you recognise that you are in a loving relationship with other Christians in this country and across the world? Aren't we concerned about them? Don't we want their good? Aren't we prepared to put ourselves out even a little bit for their benefit? And then the really tough question, what would we want them to do if the situations were reversed? And we were the ones in desperate need and they were the ones in great plenty. Giving is a test of our love for God and a proof of our changed heart. Third principle, all should give. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now, Keith this morning mentioned that all of us should sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs because it's not about whether we have the ability uh, of an opera singer when we come to singing. It's the result of uh, uh, the spiritual work that's going on inside of us. So too with giving. It's not about whether you have the money of Bill Gates. Everyone should give. All should give. It's not about money giving, and it certainly isn't about the amount of money that you have available. It's about the heart attitude. All should give according to their ability. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Let me read it again. Let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. That's what it says in the church Bible. Less quaintly, the NIV puts it this way. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Christian giving is a universal principle. It's for everyone, and this means you if you are saved. So that's the principle. So do we in fact do it? Or do you just throw your money up and let God keep what fails to come back down? Maybe God has only blessed us so that we may be the means of blessing others. All who are saved should give. Fourth principle, you've got to give generously. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 2 to 3. The NIV puts it this way. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. 
For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Now Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he's talking about the Macedonians. And we see here that even poor people can give generously because it's not about the amount of money. It's about heart attitude. Their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And let me tell you, the poor, the poor of 2,000 years ago were probably much poorer than any uh, impoverished people today. 2 Corinthians 8.4 tells us that we should to give willingly. Because it says that they, they pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And that willingness is also repeated in what Paul writes in Romans 15 that we read before. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 5-7, uh, it says, uh, be ready to give a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. I think there's a strong echo of the Lord's Prayer there uh, where, where our Lord told us to forgive each other as we have been forgiven ourselves. And in many ways, uh, you know, we should be generous with others and as, we, uh, as God has dealt generously with us. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 9, each of you should give you, uh, should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is a Christian grace, we are taught in 2 Corinthians, to, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. And you can possess this Christian gift even though you are in extreme poverty. Giving is a service to the Lord's people. Let it be generous. And we should remember the verses, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 14 to 15, because our giving sets an example that others will follow. Maybe one day the tables will be turned and they will give to meet our needs. Set a good example. And the fifth and final principle is that we should give regularly. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. All should give regularly, willingly, generously and lovingly. And here the Corinthians are exhorted to set aside money for the poor in Jerusalem on the first day of each and every week. 
Is our giving sporadic? Is it only as a result of seeing a need on a slide or two from a visiting speaker at the prayer meeting? Is our, our giving should not be a last-minute reflex, perhaps as you give a few bits of loose change to a beggar that you just walk past in the street, but our giving, the Apostle Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, should be a planned, ordered response to the need. Giving surely should be ingrained in our character. It was ingrained in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And aren't we following him? Aren't we trying to do what he did? But obviously, there's orders of magnitude difference in the scale of what he gave to what we can possibly give. Our giving shouldn't catch us on the hop, should it? That's why they have to give the money regularly, set aside what they can in their heart determine. It shouldn't be, you shouldn't get caught on the hop. Sorry, I can't give because it's a heavy week for spending for me this week. It shouldn't be like that, should it? It should be our regular practice. And we should always have something set aside. Remember, it's not about the amount. It's about the principle and practice of it. Now, giving is not a Christian tax. And the glory and honour resulting from giving goes to God and not the giver, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.13. Now, I could do several sermons on Paul's teaching on giving, and we could pull out many more principles. Please read the passage and see for yourself what the apostle says in the word of God. But I've gone through what I think are the, the fine main principles. But just one thing to note. This is given to Christians in need that Paul is talking about. It is above and beyond our necessary support for the local church. That's a separate issue entirely. So in conclusion, as those transformed by the Holy Spirit, as those living a radically different life in this fallen world, do we show the evidence of our faith in the giving of our lives to God? Do we give ourselves to God and to others? Do we give ourselves to Christian study and work, to prayer, to worship and evangelism? As I said before, your money is the last thing that God wants. He wants your heart, mind and life. Have you given them to God? Do we give to Christians in need, especially those who, through no fault of their own, are in great need? Do we give to those who are not our kind of Christian? Those perhaps who speak different languages, those who look different, are from, perhaps from overseas, different cultures, different social classes. The Galatian churches, the Gent sorry, the Gentile churches of Galatia, Achaia and Macedonia and the province of Asia rose to the challenge of giving to Jewish strangers far away in Judea. People with whom they had no natural affinity at all before they were converted. Do we rise to the challenge before us today? 
Do we recognise that those in need elsewhere, do we recognise them as our brothers and sisters in Christ? And are our hearts open to the needs of these brothers and sisters in Christ? Let us give ourselves as Jesus Christ gave himself for us. And let us do it lovingly, willingly, generously and regularly. In doing so, we first, we give ourselves firstly to God and all the glory goes rightly to him. And that's surely something that we want. Thank you.